All right, so Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, all the way through chapter 22, verse 5 is where we're going to be this morning. You guys remember going back a few weeks, um, we looked at Revelation chapter 17 all the way up through Revelation chapter 20. And what those chapters cover is God systematically, methodically wiping out each one of his enemies. So starting in Revelation chapter 17 through the middle of chapter 19, it's Babylon. It's the city of Babylon, this system of earthly power that is thoroughly corrupt, that has sought to corrupt the people of God. The city of Babylon falls, and God's people celebrate. That's chapter 17 through the middle of chapter 19. Then at the end of Revelation chapter 19, it's the beast and the false prophet. Each one of them together are thrown into the lake of fire. So Babylon, the beast and false prophet, and then in Revelation chapter 20, God sets his sights on Satan himself. He binds Satan for a thousand years, embarrassing him. Then he throws him into the lake of fire right alongside the beast and false prophet. So God wipes out his enemies from chapter 17 through the end of chapter 20. And now, praise God, we've turned a corner. As we heard earlier, Revelation chapter 21, it's no longer about the defeat of evil. It's about the establishment of righteousness. There's a different tone once you get to Revelation chapter 21 because the new heavens and new earth have arrived now that the former things have passed away. So we're continuing to see John's vision of heaven uh, unfold in these verses. Chapter 21, verse 9, all the way through chapter 22, verse 5. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And the angel spoke to me. He said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The angel carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. The angel showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The city had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on the foundations were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me, the angel, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square and its length the same as its width. The angel measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. The angel also measured the city's wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, 
the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives the city its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into God's city. And the city's gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter into the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter God's city. Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1965, Loretta Lynn released a music album simply titled Hymns. If you don't know Loretta Lynn, the coal miner's daughter, she is the all-time queen of country music. For you young people, she is the OG Taylor Swift, okay? She's the original, and the original is always better, just saying. So in 1965, she releases an album called Hymns. Some of the songs were classics, like How Great Thou Art, but some of the songs were new and composed by Lynn herself. In fact, the album's only single was an original composition, and the title of that only solo song was this, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But Nobody Wants to Die. And here's how the chorus goes. I have to sing this for you, right? <laughs> I am either stupid or arrogant for doing this, but one thing is for sure, I am going to embarrass my wife. Here we go. <clears throat> Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to die. Though I long for the day when I'll have new birth, still I love living here on earth. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Amen? Yeah. 
I went to Nashville this weekend to visit my grandma. <laughs> I could sing at the Grand Ole Opry, maybe, <laughs> one day. <clears throat> Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I love how haunting and creative, but also really insightful, those lyrics are. She points out, who doesn't want to go to heaven? Who doesn't want to experience an afterlife of bliss? At the same time, none of us want to go through what it takes to get there, dying. Heaven sounds great, but I still love living here on earth, she says. Heaven sounds great, but I'll take my 75, 80 years, please, God. So let me ask, what's your view of heaven? What's your estimation of the life to come in the new heavens and new earth versus life now? Which is better? Which is worth more? Which is worth living for more? Well, I think the rationale behind today's text is that the value we place on heaven is directly related to our vision of heaven. Our value of heaven is related to our vision of heaven. So today in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, through chapter 22, verse 5, John shares with us a vision of heaven. And this is not some puny, they lived happily ever after fairy tale description. No, we are given an epic, glorious vision so that our minds will be consumed and our hearts will begin to crave our forever eternal home. This description here is not of hallmark baby angels and harps meant to give us the feel-goods. Rather, it is a vision of a solid, splendid, eternal city so that we'll be motivated to long for and live for the city of God that is to come. That's the purpose of this scripture, so that we would begin to crave the life to come in God's city. So what makes the city of God so glorious? Why should we long for and live to enter the heavenly city? Well, as this passage unfolds, we're going to see three elements about God's city that should cause us to long for it and cause us to live for it. First, John describes the layout of the city. That's the first attractive element of the city of God, its layout. So look back with me. At verse 9, John begins there by telling us that an angel comes to him. So angels have played a big part in the book of Revelation. The word angel is used over 60 times in the whole book. John tells us about this angel, that he's one of the angels who formerly poured out the seven bowls of God's wrath. So if we go back to Revelation chapter 15 and 16... John receives a vision there of God's final judgment on earth, and it's described in terms of these different bowls of God's wrath being poured out on different elements of the earth. The bowls are given to seven different angels, and then one by one, John describes how the enemies of God are doused and drenched with God's wrath, 
poured all over them by these angels. And John lets us know here that it's one of those angels who is now showing him a different vision because the wrath of God is finished and now it's only the beauty of God that's on display. God's work of destruction is complete and now it's his work of construction that we see. The city of God is built up in place of what was earlier destroyed. John reminds us of that by telling us, here, one of these angels who earlier brought God's judgment, now he's showing you something different. That's the difference between Revelation 20 and chapter 21. So again, verse 9, John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, And the angel spoke to me, saying, John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So this is potentially confusing here because this vision is going to mix metaphors. First, the angel says that he's going to show John the bride, the wife of the Lamb. But then what he actually shows him is a city. And this once more just reminds us that we are reading apocalyptic literature. So we should not expect this to read like an encyclopedia entry, which is very literal and dry and to the point. No, this is spiritual and heavenly vision. It's meant to capture our hearts. It's meant to entrance our minds. Encyclopedia entries don't do that. We don't want to be overly literal when we're reading this kind of writing. Nevertheless, the angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And the bride, the wife of the lamb is, of course, a reference to the church. We are the bride of Christ. We are those who are wedded to Christ in covenant relationship through faith. But then in verse 10, again, the angel says, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So the angel carries John away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And from this mountain, he then sees the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So most earthly cities, right, are built from the ground up, but not God's city. It comes from the top down. Just like the Tower of Babel, cities built by human effort are built from the foundation up, but God's city is not built by human effort. It is a gift to be received. So from this mountaintop, John witnesses the heavenly city descend, and he notes that it is radiant, like a bride on her wedding day arriving down the aisle to be received by her husband. The heavenly city, the bride of Christ, is pure and is as radiant as the rarest of jewels. She's been purified and made majestic. And then as more and more of the city descends into view, John describes its layout. Presumably on the top of this mountain, the more of it that descends down, he can see from the top down what the layout of the city looks like. He describes the four walls surrounding the city. He says that each wall had three gates, so 12 gates total. And he says the wall had 12 foundations as well. So a few things to note here. Walls around the city 
symbolize and actualize a city's protection. Walls around a city are meant to communicate to the city's inhabitants, you are safe, you are free from threats. So contrast this with like a Coleman camping tent, right? You're in the woods, far from safety, wildlife surrounds you, so that cheap Walmart-purchased thin material camping tent is not going to keep that grizzly's paws off of you. You are not protected. You are not safe. You are at the mercy of the grizzly in the tent of Coleman. But John says here, the heavenly city of God has great high walls. And so this is meant to communicate, in heaven, you will be safe. In heaven, you will be free from threat. You will be free from fear. But not only are these walls great and tall, they are beautiful. They are radiant. They are stunning. So God's heaven is not only meant to be an experience of freedom from fear and an experience of comfort for safety, we also experience the ecstasy, the exhilaration of beauty. Heaven is enchanting. Heaven is wonderful. It's aesthetically pleasing, not just practically useful. This makes me think of the Woodward Dream Cruise that's about to happen next month. Many of the sports cars and luxury cars that will be shown off then, they are not practical. They are not sensible, but they are awesome. The gas mileage on these vehicles, the seating capacity in these vehicles pale in comparison to my Chrysler minivan. <laughs> so why do we love these cars? It's because they're stunning. It's because our hearts, friends, our hearts were made for beauty. Our hearts were made to be jaw-droppingly stunned with glory. And John says that's what's happening right here in Revelation chapter 21. Cosmic beauty is on display as heaven descends onto earth. A final aspect of the layouts worth mentioning comes in verses 15 through 17. There, John describes how the city is essentially a perfect cube, and its dimensions are measured to perfection by an angelic measuring rod. Verse 16 says that the city lies four square with its length and width and height being equal. Measured 12,000 stadia on each side, which is about 1,400 miles. But this cubic shape is likely a reference to the most holy place, the holy of holies in the Old Testament temple. That also was a cube-shaped room at the center of the center of the Old Testament temple. It's where the Ark of the Covenant resided. It's where the presence of God was most concentrated during the Old Testament. Well, now this entire city is blueprinted like the Holy of Holies. So no longer is the most holy place buried in the middle of the temple. The entire city is consumed with the holy presence of God. In fact, John tells us in verse 22 that there is no temple 
in the heavenly city. And it's because there's no need of a temple. God is so fully present in this enormous holy of holies that is the heavenly temple. You know, oftentimes when we think of cities, we think of crime, we think of pollution, we think of overpopulation, we think of the homeless population, we think of how quickly disease spreads there, we think of all the corruption that tends to happen there, the infrastructure is often struggling, law enforcement is often spread thin, the education systems are often overburdened and underfunded. Yes, cities can have this appeal and this allure. There can be many opportunities in the city, but very often the first thing when we think about them is their brokenness and their ailments before we think about anything else. They're fun to visit, but it's also fun to go home. But church, the end time heavenly city is as pure and lovely as a bride on her wedding day. She's perfectly measured out. She's full of the presence of God. The cities of earth, they are often infested, but the city of God is unadulterated, spotless, shameless. It's a place of peace, safety, and freedom. It's a place of fearlessness. There's a tranquility within its walls that we can't even imagine in this life. In other words, so many of our core desires are fulfilled only there. Our desire for safety, our desire for freedom, our desire for peace is only fulfilled there. And we see that truth in the layout of the city as John describes it here. So why should we long for why should we live to enter God's city first? Because of what we learn through the layout of the city. Secondly, it's because of the light of the city. The light of the city. So in verse 23, John continues explaining his vision of God's city. He says that it has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. So John says that the natural elements of light, like sun and moon, are no longer needed. Later in chapter 22, verse 5, he also says that any lamps of light will no longer be necessary. And the reason that these natural or man-made sources of light are no longer needed is because the supernatural presence of God will be so fully revealed. He goes on to say in verse 24 that the nations are enabled to walk because of God's fully manifested light. So in the old creation, in the old order, the nations struggled. The nations struggled mightily to walk uprightly. Justice and truth and goodness are not ideals that the nations of earth excel at. A lot of them can build big armies. A lot of them can have great economies. A lot of them can develop some amazing technologies. But tr justice and truth and goodness are not ideals that the nations of the earth excel at. But in the age to come, the kings of the earth will finally see, ah, that's where we need to look for the way of justice and truth. The city of God, not our own. 
In verse 25, John says that the city will be so free from corruption that the gates of the city will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night. So here's what he says. It will always be day, and the gates will always be open by day. Therefore, the city gates will always be open. The threat of sin and injustice will be so obliterated that no one will need to lock their doors. So I grew up in a small town in South Alabama, about 8,500 people. The closest mall was over an hour away. The closest airport was an hour and a half. We did have a Walmart. But my point is that it was a small town, a rural town. And when I drove my car to go to Walmart, for example, to go shopping, not only did I not lock the doors of my car, not only did I leave my keys in my unlocked car, I would leave my keys in the ignition of my unlocked car. That's how little threat I felt from my car getting broken into or getting stolen. And you know what? My car was never broken into, nor was it ever stolen. And I had a nice car, 2001 GMC Yukon, leather interior, four-wheel drive, way nicer than the car I'm driving now. <laughs> never was broken into, never was stolen, because I lived in a small, safe town. But a few years later, I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, a much larger city with a very high crime rate. I moved there to get a job and to pursue the woman who is now my wife. Meg was from the Detroit area, so she had to teach me. CT, you can't leave your car unlocked. You can't leave your keys in your unlocked car. And you certainly cannot leave your keys in the ignition of your unlocked car, you country bumpkin. <laughs> you see, growing up in a small town, I was more naive than my wife, who grew up closer to the city. I was more naive to the reality of sin and injustice and crime. But friends, in God's holy city, in God's heavenly, light-filled city, the threat of sin will be so far removed that the gates will never need to be shut. There is wide open access all the time. Then in verse 27, John clarifies for us even further. He says, nothing unclean will ever enter into God's city, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So John says that everything unclean and everyone who does anything unclean, things that are detestable or false, they will never enter into God's city. Because here's the thing, the completely unleashed light of God exposes all evil. The completely unfiltered light of God exposes every injustice, and so sin will never make it in. But John says those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, we will be free to come and go. Now, who does he mean by those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life? This is an important question, right? Because it's these people who get to enter into God's city. Well, the clue 
to whose names are written in this book is that the book is called the Lamb's Book of Life. The Lamb, of course, being Jesus, and Jesus being called a Lamb, of course, points to His sacrificial death. So friend, if you are trusting in Jesus, the Lamb of God, if you are trusting in what he did when he sacrificed himself on the cross for your sin, then that is all you need to enter into God's heavenly city. So I ask, do you identify with Christ? Do you pledge your highest allegiance to him? Do you forsake sin? Do you break allegiance with the powers of darkness? If so, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and you have been purified by his blood, so the light of God's glory will not expose sin in you because Christ is in you, and you will be welcomed into his holy, light-filled city with full and free access. What makes the city of God glorious and compelling First, the layout of the city. Second, the light of the city. And finally, the life of the city. The life of the city. So look back once more at the start of chapter 22. John continues his description of this vision of the city. He writes in verse 1, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb flowing through the middle of the street of the city. So it's true that very often when cities are built up, they're built up around a certain body of water. In other words, when people were wanting to establish a city, first they found a body of water that would allow the city to thrive, that would give them food, that would give them transportation. So for example, Cairo, Egypt, it's right alongside the Nile River. Or Miami, Florida, is founded right upon the Atlantic coast. Or Detroit, Michigan, was established right by the Detroit River. This strait between Lake Erie and Lake Huron. Detroit is actually the French word for strait, S-T-R-A-I-T. A body of water that connects two other bodies of water. That's the city of Detroit. So very often when people want to start a city, they have to find a body of water to start the city around. But in the city of God, God did not come alongside a pre-existing water source. Rather, the river of the water of life flows right through the middle of the city of God, and the source of this river is God himself. So as there is this divine self-sufficiency on display here. God is not dependent on the highs and lows of the sea level. God is not dependent upon the natural water cycle with the snow on the mountains melting down and then streaming into supply the river. No, he is infinitely self-replenishing source of life. The river of the water of life is self supplied right from the base of the throne of God and the Lamb of God in the middle of the city of God. And then John describes that on either side of the river of life is the tree of life. And the tree of life produces leaves that work for the healing of the nations, he says. So if you think back to Revelation 20, 
when the nations were last mentioned before chapter 21. You remember that God imprisons Satan for a thousand years. So the nations are free from satanic influence for a whole millennium. But then when God releases Satan, immediately Satan is able to deceive the nations and he creates a satanic army that surrounds God's people. That's how corruptible, that's how deceivable, that's how sinful the nations are prone to be. Satan can deceive them like that even when they've been free from his influence for a full 1,000 years. And friends, this is no less true today. The nations of the world now are all painfully inflicted with the curse of sin, exercising evil. But I want you to see God's heart. Yes, God is just and he punishes wicked nations, no doubt, but his greatest desire is not to execute justice, but to show compassion. His ultimate goal is to see the nations healed, and that's what he says happens here in Revelation chapter 22. For the societies who repent, for the nations who destroy the idols of their hearts and worship the living God, they will drink from the river of the water of life. They will eat from the tree of life. This is God's heart. This is what God wants for the nations of our world. He is slow to anger, but he is abounding in steadfast love. Yes, he will get angry. Yes, he will uphold justice, but he is so much more eager to pour out mercy. And that's what he does for the nations who come to him in repentance and faith. And so John says in verse 3, at that point when the nations are healed, there will no longer be anything accursed. So you think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, God's good creation was cursed by the power of sin. The human race was cursed by the power of sin. But fast forward all the way to Revelation chapter 22, John says, no more. God has made it on earth as it is in heaven. His throne is established and the curse of sin is undone. So Isaac Watts, in his famous Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, he has a great verse, and I'm not going to sing it for you. Just imagine. I can't get that reputation. <clears throat> he says, No more let sins and sorrows grow. No more let thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Isn't that beautiful? As far as the curse is found, the grace and mercy of God will overcome it. And when that happens, John says, we will worship him. We will see him face to face. We will be marked by his name. So as we wrap up this morning, I ask you, where do you see the effect of sin's curse in your own life? 
How is the original sin reverberating through the ages, impacting your life this morning? Maybe there's an addiction that you just can't shake, follows you around as close as your shadow. Maybe there's broken relationships, fractured relationships with some of the people you're supposed to be most close to. Parents, siblings, spouse, children, these broken relationships litter the timeline of your life leading all the way up to this morning. Or maybe you see the effect of sin's curse physically. Physical struggles, maybe mental struggles that no matter how many interventions you take, no matter how many meds you try, no matter how many specialists you visit, still no answers. Where do you see the effect of sin's curse in your life this morning? How has the original sin reverberated throughout the ages and landed in your lap right now? Well, I want to encourage you, however much damage sin has done to you, however much you are stuck in the middle of it, these verses here are designed to turn our eyes from sin's rule in ages past to its undoing in the age to come. The river of the water of life will flow forever. The tree of life will bear fruit Season after season, bodies will be healed, hearts will be healed, life will be experienced beyond our wildest imagination. Loretta's song earlier mentions, though I long for the day when I'll have new birth, still I love living here on earth. But that's the thing. The life we're living here on this earth, before it's renewed, as amazing as this life can be, it can hardly be called life compared to the life to come. And so I want to warn you, if you are in love with this life more than you are in love with the life to come, you are in the wrong way. If you are in love with this life, more than the life to come, then you are in the wrong way. If you love your children, if you love your money, if you love your house, if you love your job, if you love your possessions that you have in this life, if you love those things more than the life to come, then we are in the wrong way. Now listen, I love my home, my family, my job. But if I love these earthly temporary goods more than the life to come, then I don't really know what life is. Brothers and sisters, shame can cause us to hide our faces in our hands. Fear can cause us to shrink back. But what this text is doing is trying to lift our eyes to see what life truly is. In Psalm chapter 3, God is called the lifter of our heads. And so I pray for you now that you would receive the grace of Christ that comes from the cross 
Allow him to lift your eyes above your shame, above your fear, above your sin, and look to the day of redemption. Look to the day when it is finished, and we will finally, fully experience shameless, fearless, joy-filled life. That day, that life is worth loving, is worth living for more than anything we can experience in the 75 to 80 years we get to experience this time around. Let's long for and live for the city of God that is to come. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together, and I'll pray for us.